Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Robot Samurai Overlord Edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. I'm joined once again by my good friend, Tamara Kaufman, with us back from just gallivanting all over the globe for the past two weeks. Not exactly all over the globe, but perhaps all over the Middle East. Yeah. I was in uh, Doha and Tel Aviv and delighted to be back with you. Good. Jane, you had a good trip? I had a good trip. I got a little sun. And yeah, yeah. It was only 120 degrees in Doha. Oh, it's, that's, that's like just... Balmy. Balmy. Shaw. It's a spring day. <laughs> exactly. Um, did you eat some good food? Because I always like to hear about your food adventures. Uh, I had some great fresh grilled fish. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I did not. Although I heard that lots of Brookings people got sick. What? Uh, yes, it, it's just possible that the hotel cuisine was not entirely hygienic. Oh. Was this, was this a plot to, like, knock off members of elite <laughs> Washington think tanks? <laughs> Or just not, like not, not that we the know fish. of, but you know, <laughs> the Iranians are everywhere. Oh, they sure are. Oh, they sure are. We're going to be hearing more about that soon too. Um, and and also as joined by my friend Ben Wittes, who did man the home front ably, I think. I managed manned the home front. Wells had a baby. Uh, Tomorrow was off in the Middle East, and yeah. I managed the home front and relaunched Lawfare. And relaunched Lawfare. You did. This is really a, quite a uh, uh, but an eventful week. Congratulations. Yes, it's been, a, it's been a big week. You should all check out the new Lawfare. Uh, you should, uh, while you're there, click and make a contribution. We've been mm-hmm. trying to pay for this giant new website, uh, but we're very excited about it. It's, it's, it's uh, powerful, and it gives us a lot of uh, new, uh, new abilities, including the ability in partnership with uh, Tamara's Center, the Center for Middle East uh, Studies at Brookings, uh, to bring you Omphalos, uh-huh. the, our new Middle East-themed um, subsidiary page on Lawfare. So check it all out, enjoy it, and... Uh, and learn how to pronounce... Omphalos. Omphalos. I didn't, when I first saw that, I thought maybe that was like something from The Wizard of Oz. Like yeah, the, the a made-up animal. Like, yeah, or like, an, oh, like a Dr. Seuss Yes, thing. Yeah. exactly. I did not know, but then... I found it's, it's it's a center is what it essentially means. Right? Yeah, like so a, it's, it's a foundational. It's, the li- it's literally from the Greek word for navel, uh-huh. and an omphalos stone uh, is a stone in ancient religions that is believed to be the center of the world. The Greeks had one at the at Delphi, which you can still see the the Delphi omphalos stone. And interestingly, this belief that the center of the world is a rock. Uh, has persisted in modern religions. So traditionally, Judaism regards the center of the world as the, the rock in what's now the Dome of the Rock on, on the old Temple Mount. Uh, the Muslims regard, you know, the rock at Kaaba, the Kaaba in Mecca as the center of the world. And at least Orthodox Christians situate the, uh, have an omphalos stone that's in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So there's this this feature of ancient religions that has 
persisted. And so we took the name because for lawfare readers, I think the Middle East is kind of uh, the center of all the issues that we treat. Um, and, and, and lawfare is the center of the world when it comes to national security. It is. Law. And you so form your religion? We are forming, and we expect people now to walk in circles around lawfare. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll be running circles around all the competition. We are. Yeah. All right, this week on the show, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, yeah, yeah, that guy, Benjamin Netanyahu, <laughs> <laughs> Prime Minister of Israel, oh my God, yeah, gave a major speech, uh, which was probably more eloquent than mine, uh, at the Herzliya Conference on National Security, but he spent a lot of time talking about the economy, we're going to discuss that. The Supreme Court hands down its ruling on U.S. passports and Israel. How important is it to Middle East policy? And is it a big day for John Yu? And just when you thought the fight over government surveillance was over, along comes Patriot Act 2.0. Plus, in our object lesson, how many lemons can a samurai robot slice if a samurai robot sliced lemons? <laughs> um, tomorrow, why don't we start with you uh, and your wordplay, this uh, very interesting speech that the guy who runs Israel gave. <laughs> Whose name is? Is Benjamin Netan... Netan... Netan Honey. <laughs> <laughs> I can't actually pronounce it, but I'm not going to now. All right. <laughs> We're going to test you again at the end of this, of this segment. Um, so I was in uh, Israel, among other things, for uh, the Herzliya National Security Conference, which is a big annual powwow convened by the Interdisciplinary Center, a university in uh, Herzliya, Israel. And um, it's traditionally a place where is senior Israeli officials come and present their vision. And with Prime Minister Netanyahu newly elected to his fourth term, having just completed government formation and kind of launching on this term, we were all um, waiting with breathless anticipation to hear what he would have to say on the national security topics that have obsessed Israel and um, Israeli foreign policy. And all those Arab voters. And uh, Yeah, and all those Arab voters that were going in droves to the polls. Um, that is to say, Israel, Israel's conflict with the Palestinians, the question of Iran's nuclear program, and so on. What was so interesting to me is that Prime Minister Netanyahu spent the first, literally, one-third of his speech um, talking about economics and national economic policy and international trade and Israel's trade relationships. And, you know, he laid out as a goal in this national security speech, uh, achieving a 5% growth rate for the national economy. He talked about the importance of infrastructure and uh, mass transit. Uh, he Sounds like a Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly he's a Democrat. <laughs> Suddenly he's a Democrat uh, running, yeah, running back toward the other side of the political spectrum. I don't know. Um, but I thought it was it was really, really notable. And he talked also about Israel's innovation economy, how you sustain it, the growing role of, of Israeli companies in cybersecurity, and how to build partnerships between governments and universities and the private sector on cybersecurity, which is a topic we might revisit yeah. some other time. And he also talked about Israel's new um, energy industry, which is the subject of intense domestic controversy in the country right now because uh, there's a question of whether the monopoly that um, is uh, trying to exploit Israel's relatively newly discovered natural gas reserves should be split up. Um, so I just I thought this was fascinating um, that he he didn't set aside those other topics, Iran and, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and so on, 
But he um, started out with this emphasis that Israel cannot be strong unless its economy is strong. And for its economy to be strong and to grow, it needs really strong international relationships. And he spoke both about the U.S., but also about China and India in that regard. And, you know, this is um, striking from the Prime Minister of Israel, but it's not at all unique. You know, the Pentagon now is talking about the impact of climate change mm-hmm. on uh, U.S. national security strategy and military operations. Um, and I think that, you know, as the U.S. government and other governments turn more and more to international sanctions as a tool of foreign policy, uh, the role of economics in national security um, becomes more and more prominent. So I, it just made me think that um, we really are seeing a broader definition of national security embraced not just by academics or think tankers, which I think has been true for a while, um, and not just by mar- groups that feel marginalized from the national mm-hmm. security debate who have been using these other topics to claw their way in, but political leaders are embracing this broader conception now. And uh, and so my question uh, to you guys is, is this just a, a way of distracting from other issues that are harder to solve? Um, or, you know, is this really a broadening of the concept of national security that political leaders feel compelled to embrace? Well, it seems like, I mean, I'm hearing themes in this description of the speech that seem like were largely the contours of the of the debate when he was running uh, in, in the elections, right? I mean, it was a debate about the economy, it was a debate about jobs and wages and prices and the cost of groceries and housing. I mean, I don't know if you got into those kind of domestic aspects, but it seems to me like, well, why wasn't he making this speech when he was running, and why did it become about national security? And, I mean, does this reflect just the reality that on the ground in Israel, that while you might win an election based on national security and scaring people about Arabs, that you have to govern based on these economic concerns more than the security concerns? Well, I think that's a really interesting possibility, although of all places to, to come and appeal to the domestic audience, right. I'm not sure that the, this was the, one. the Herzliya yeah. Conference on National Security is the way to do it. What do you think, then? Well, so it fits into a pattern that we also see in the United States, you know, when when people talk about the U.S.-China relationship and, you know, what's the security implications of the U.S.-China relationship, people often say, you know, the thing that is most important for the U.S. in that is to get its economic house in order, right, to project a... Um, so I, I do think that there's a... Um, that there's always been in national security talk a sense that economic security and economic power is never too far behind national security you know scratch the national security question and you end up with a do you have an economy that's capable of supporting your national security objectives or capable of producing um but i do think it's interesting for an israeli prime minister to go to herzliya and talk principally about economic performance i just think that's that is unusual, and usually in Israel you have a pretty substantial separation of those two spheres. Now, I think part of what's changed is that the Israeli economy, which used to be very tenuous and very dependent on its national security situation, now is not that tenuous, and it isn't that dependent on its national security situation. It's not as tourist-driven as it used to be. It has this incredible high-tech sector. 
Um, it has a, you know, degree of uh, income inequality that is very American, and that's been driven, I think, by, you know, the explosive growth uh, for people above a certain socioeconomic level in income and opportunities. And I think now they are in this situation where whatever happens in the security space, they have to perform economically to re retain a certain viability that they've achieved. It's an incredible set of accomplishments, but it, it isn't self-perpetuating. And I think it probably reflects, Netanyahu's comments probably reflect that sort of change in Israel's economic profile. I, I think that's a really interesting point. I, I wonder, too, if there might not be an additional component of um, the rationale behind this that is more about domestic politics, not just that you have to govern on the basis of, of economics, Shane, but also that the only, and this was very interesting in my meetings with political leaders during the course of this trip, the new government is a narrow right-wing majority, um, but it really doesn't have a policy agenda beyond a certain set of economic reforms um, that Netanyahu and uh, the new center party, Kulanu, both feel are really important to growth, and the other parties are kind of willing to go along with. But the things they want to do are disruptive, um, in, in potentially in, in social welfare terms, and expensive. And it seems to me that, you know, this is a country that's always had a national budget, um, for obvious reasons, skewed in the direction of national security. And in every political debate um, there as well as here, uh, national security spending is easier to justify than any other kind of spending. So laying out his economic goals in the context of strengthening Israel, I think is also a way of setting up the political debate for the stuff that he and his government want to get done, saying there's not a trade-off between spending on the military and spending on economic growth. This is all important to Israel's national security. So let's stay on Israel, Ben, for uh, your wordplay uh, in this important Supreme Court ruling this week. Right, so, you know, the, the, the coverage of it all made it seem like it was really about Israel. But the importance of this case is actually, I mean, I don't know how I'd be interested for tomorrow's sense of how it played in Israel, but um, the importance of this case is as a matter of uh, executive power and foreign relations law. And, you know, the background of the case is, is the question of whether the... Uh, Congress can force the administration to issue a passport to somebody in that identifies his place of birth as Jerusalem, Israel, even though the State Department does not recognize Israel as Jerusalem's capital. Um, and the Supreme Court, uh, in a f five to four or six to three opinion, to sort of depending on how you count, um, rules decisively in favor of the executive branch here um, and says the president has the sole authority to recognize foreign governments. That excludes a congressional role and therefore Congress's interference in that through this law that gave people the ability to request Israel be listed on their passports if they were born in Jerusalem uh, is unconstitutional. Now there's a few really fun little wrinkles in this story. So one is that the mechanism, one of the mechanisms which the executive used to reject compliance with this law was a signing statement 
issued by George W. Bush. Hmm. And the five more liberal justices cite a signing statement as evidence of, um, you know, the, the president's view here. So this was actually a signing statement that was probably written by David Addington and um, almost certainly functioned here exactly the way he imagined it would, which is to say, I assert that I, as the president, I can defy an act of Congress because it infringes on executive authority. And five justices of the Supreme Court, including the five, you know, four liberals, say, right. Mm -hmm. And the people who dissent are the, the hardcore conservatives on the court, other, except for Clarence Thomas, who has a very complicated opinion. But Scalia, Alito, and, um, and, uh, the Chief Justice are the ones who say, actually, no, Congress does have the authority to regulate this space, and the President does not have the ability simply to, uh, stick his middle finger up at, at an act of Congress. So there's a very deep irony in the way the case uh, played out um, in which the Bush administration signing statement and rejection of an act of Congress carries forward into the Obama administration and is affirmed by the um, by the liberal side of the Supreme Court and by the way cheered by the New York Times right and produces a policy outcome that conservatives in the United States oppose on policy grounds correct. So it's pretty interesting. Now, to be fair, I I do think it's worth stressing this is actually a very hard and interesting and question of of separation of powers law that reasonable minds can really disagree about what is what what acts constitute recognition, what acts don't, how exclusive is the recognition authority to the president. These are actually deep questions of constitutional law. So I'm not saying that everybody's being hypocritical, but God, it looks like everybody's being <laughs> hypocritical. Well, and it's it's fascinating that all of that um, nuanced debate about executive authority and its limitations was entirely lost on the Israeli audience. shouldn't surprise you at all, but the way this Supreme Court decision played in the Israeli media was Obama wins um, and uh, the Israeli government loses. Um, so in the context of the broader tensions in the U.S.-Israel relationship that the Supreme Court sort of added points on Obama's side of the ledger. And, uh, and, you know, it's, we shouldn't expect an Israeli audience to, to, um, even pay much attention to, much less understand the constitutional Arguments at stake. They don't have a constitution, and they don't, and, and and they don't have separation of powers. Right, and and their own perception of their own Supreme Court is that it's much more politicized, right. um, perhaps partly as a result of not having a constitution. But in any event, for them, it was all in the context of of politics and the U.S.-Israel relationship. But a number of Israelis um, said to me, you know. We just don't get why you, we understand that U.S. policy has always been that Jerusalem is disputed, but we just don't get why is West Jerusalem disputed? This was part of Israel in 1948 and the U.S. recognized it back in 1948. So why can't people born in West Jerusalem get Jerusalem Israel in their passport? And that, that's just a, a, a substantive question that I don't have an answer to. Why isn't it an adequate answer that, you know, 
the United States considers unresolved final status issues to be unresolved final status issues and the status of Jerusalem, not well, the status of East Jerusalem, was always reserved for final status negotiations? Well, it's an interesting question. I'd have to go back and look at the Declaration of Principles and the other you know, documents from the Oslo process, but I'm not sure how the issue of Jerusalem is defined in those documents, um, whether it's defined with respect to the 1967 lines or not. Just as a matter of routine, it's probably a dumb question, but the Israeli public does not closely follow Supreme Court issues, right? In the United States, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> shockingly, no. They so don't. There, I mean, was there like? I mean, was there? Did, I mean, did the Israeli media have to like give people a primer on how the U.S. Supreme Court works to even unpack this? I mean, was it sort of like a? There, the, there was definitely uh, journalists were definitely working to explain <clears throat> that this was an argument about executive versus legislative authority. No. Um, but they, you know, it's a parliamentary system, so right. separation of powers is not at all the same there. So that already is a step beyond yeah. most Israelis' this conception. Like, you know, extra strange. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting window. Well, and, and also if you read, I mean, the, the Supreme Court opinion is really not about what U.S. policy toward Israel or Jerusalem should right. be. It starts, Justice Kennedy starts it by saying, hey, there's this involves Jerusalem, we're really not going to talk about that. <laughs> you know? And um, it, it really is about um, who has the, what is the act of recognition and who has the authority, or rather, who has the authority to recognize another country and where does, and, and what kind of acts do and don't constitute recognition. It's actually a really interesting uh, opinion and debate. Uh, it's conducted at a pretty high level among the justices, and uh, Jack Goldsmith has some fabulous commentary on it on, on Lawfare. Well, you know, good opportunity for explanatory journalism in the Israeli media, and, you know, pity the, pity the journalists who had to figure out how to explain that to an Israeli audience. I mean, I had to go on American radio and pretend that I knew something about the Israeli election, so it always <laughs> seems fair. It seems fair. That's what journalism's all about, It's what Shane. it's all about, sounding smart on a dime. Um, so my wordplay is the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, CISA. I do you want to share? I like to share. I do want to share about cybersecurity. I guess we call it CISA or KISSA. I want to call it KISSA. KISSA. I want to call it KISSA. KISSA. Um, Can we call it Sissa? Oh, we could. Or Sissy. No, there's already a Sissy. That's the intelligence. That's the president of Egypt. (laughs) It's very confusing. There's a lot going on (laughs) with acronyms. Um, No, but this is also, this this is a Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, or as its critics would like to call it, Patriot Act 2.0. So this Framing, they're framing. Yes, they are framing, framing quite tightly. Uh, Long and short of this is that for the past two years, roughly, the Congress has been trying to get legislation passed that would set up a framework for companies to be able to exchange information with the government about hackers and cyber threats and intrusions on networks and malware and all the bad stuff they're seeing out there with the idea that this increased situational awareness will kind of lift everybody up and we'll all be more defended. Um, An extremely controversial provision, however, because its opponents see it as essentially a surveillance measure wrapped up as a cybersecurity measure um, because, yes, it will rely on surveillance authorities and collection programs to collect data, but also they see it as a new way of companies now being able to or 
compelled to uh, shunt information on their customers and on their networks over to the government. And what's interesting to me about this is just coming off of the Patriot Act slash USA Freedom Act debate where we had Freedom! You remember that? That was yeah. a high Just every time you get a chance, you're going to do that, aren't yeah. you? That was a high point in our show. <laughs> it's all that. downhill from there. Yeah, well. Um, a high point. <laughs> um, uh, no, but it, it, you had these filibuster-style tactics, tactics by Ron, Rand Paul. You had uh, the ticking down on the sunset provisions and the Patriot Act expiring. You know, all of this sort of, you know, drama uh, and a mishigas, you might say. Uh, in the Senate. Now the That's question a technical is. Term. I just want to point out that Shane just used the term Michigan. Did I use in, it correctly? In yes, you did. Awesome. Well context. done. Excellent. See, I do know something about our people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but whether or not we're going to see this again. And so what's happening now is that Ron Wyden is sort of not saying he's going to try and filibuster this provision, this bill, but sort of hinting at that. It has already passed the House. Mitch McConnell got involved, and once again, like he did with the Patriot Act, is or the U.S. Freedom Act, is trying to stymie any process of putting amendments on the bill by shoehorning it into the larger Defense Authorization Act, mm. which the White House is threatening to veto. So all of this is kind of, you know, framing up once again as a potential big showdown uh, with McConnell and on one side, and Wyden, and presumably maybe uh, Paul will come on board on the other. And it just struck me that this is sort of, you know, the contours that we see now of how the Congress appears to deal with issues related to anything on surveillance authority, which is the leadership in the Senate doing all that it can to kind of push it through, and this now kind of stalwart opposition that's going to see everything as uh, uh, enhancing surveillance, expanding those authorities, um, even if this is actually a bill that is nominally not about surveillance, but about trying to protect networks. And I just wonder if we can't, I don't know that we're going to be able to, said the Senate's going to be able to get its way out of that paradigm, and that it really makes me question whether this bill has any chance of passing. So, I mean, the question is, what drives that polarized approach, right? Is this interest group politics? Is this um, positioning for the the next electoral cycle? You know, why is a Ron Wyden kind of lining up the way he's lining up on this? So, I mean, Wyden, in a lot, and is, and is like Paul in this sense, that believes that this law is based on or, or takes advantage of uh, you know, secret interpretations of surveillance authorities. That is an example of the overreach by government, that there aren't sufficient privacy protections in the bill. And we'll sort of see this as yet another example of the government trying to intrude into your private life. The politics of this, though, very much more focused on Rand Paul, are he is running for president. He represents a libertarian wing in the Republican Party, which is not the majority, by the way, of his caucus in the Senate. Who I think by no means. No, I mean he's kind of enemy number one after the Patriot Act stuff for the GOP in the Senate. Um, but who is I, mean, I think sees this very much as a matter of principle, but also as a very winning political issue for him and a winning financial and a winning I mean. financial issue, right? Mm -hmm. I mean he's encouraging people to go to his website and buy hats and T-shirts and. By the way, give me your email and your, <laughs> your personal <laughs> So I can bombard you for the next right. two oh, years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, but it really is, I mean, it's, you know, I, we, I, we just got off this Patriot Act debate. Now we're on to this. I mean, I think you're going to see these playing out again, maybe in 2017 when the FISA Amendments Act provisions expire. Um, <clears throat> but this is the contours of debate about surveillance right now. And it's just a very, 
I wouldn't have predicted five years ago that this, or even three years ago, that this is how it would look. So two quick things, one on the merits of this bill and the other on the general pattern that you describe. On the merits of the bill, it is true that a bill that is designed to facilitate information sharing will tend to put some pressure on privacy. Um, and, you know, in the context of uh, these investigations, uh, the idea that you're going to be able to share comfortably a lot more information with the government and with other companies, which, by the way, companies are already doing. This is really just creating, clarifying that they are allowed to do this. Um, you know, that probably does involve um, some, you know, consumer information uh, being turned over in, under certain circumstances. Um, there's a flip side of that which is really important, which is that there is nothing more damaging to privacy than radical network insecurity mm -hmm. in which people are, you know, adversary actors are in all kinds of systems. And so... Yeah, just ask the Office of Personnel Management. Yeah, exactly. And that that's the worst kind of privacy outcome. And so, you know, the question of what kind of, you know, sharing a little information or a lot of information in order to help create a much more secure and private environment. Um, you know, I would caution libertarians of the left and right that that there is, that is not a, a, a an obviously bad trade. And um, so on your larger point, so this is something that I've been concerned about for a long time, just the way these bills that used to be, you know, processed in a totally nonpartisan, sort of outside of normal partisan gridlock context, um, are not anymore. And now they're, you know, we have, we had 25, 30 years of FISA being tended to in a very quiet, bipartisan fashion that was effective, and uh, we've lost that. It's now we treat it like the budget, you know, and we the same sort of brinksmanship that people do with, you know, budget continuing resolutions. And, you know, one way to think about what Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell teamed up to do here was, uh, you know, as a, something like a government shutdown, a short-term government shutdown in order to put pressure on Congress to move more their way. And it's incredibly damaging to the operators for them not to know what authorities they are and aren't going to have and under what circumstances. And particularly as you move towards 702 in the end of 2017, which is a real bread and butter authority, that uncertainty about how Congress is going to handle that process is making a lot of people very, very uneasy. You know, I, there's a lot of justice in that perspective, and certainly from a policy perspective. I would say that that argument is equally true for every other issue, particularly important issues of domestic policy that, you know, get caught up in this partisan gridlock. I mean, if you think that the operators in the cybersecurity realm are anxious about this, just imagine how millions of Americans relying on Medicare for ongoing problems and procedures who don't know what's going to be reimbursed you know, or the the many, many U.S. government contractors who can't, because there's no regular appropriations process anymore, don't know how to run their business. Or the, this, or the people who don't know if they're going to lose their health care because of a Supreme Court decision that's going to come out later this month. Okay, but that's not about legislative gridlock, although it is about politicization of policy issues. But, 
You know, the flip side of this, as detrimental as it is, and I would certainly agree that it's detrimental, number one, it's not by any means unique to, to national security, but number two, you know, part of the reason why FISA through the 90s and early 2000s could go along outside the, the regular gridlock that afflicted everything else in the political process is because it was deemed um, a specialty issue. It was deemed something that, well, that's about combating terrorism and really bad guys, and you got to just not scrutinize that in the same way in terms of the public debate. Now, this is getting a lot of scrutiny, but it is very interest group driven and very politically driven. I do think, though, that there's room for a real public conversation about what we mean by privacy, about what we, you know, if we expect our credit card companies to protect our data, how can we help them do that? That is a conversation we need to have as a country, and if it means new legislation, we should have that. So I'm all in favor of having these bills considered within the context of our regular political process. I just think that our regular political process is really screwed up. And we should say, too, that maybe this is also something that is particularly dysfunctional in the Senate. In the House, you had overwhelming passage of the USA Freedom Act, which amended the Patriot Act. It was not without debate. Some people held their nose, but they got it. They got it done. No, the House really did its job. The House did its job. The House has already passed its version of cybersecurity legislation. It passed overwhelmingly. Uh, and here again, though, you see the leadership in the Senate taking these steps to effectively limit debate and to try and move this thing along uh, very quickly uh, without, um, you know, so you're the inspection part- that I think that it, it uh, does deserve. So you're saying partly that their desire to procedurally speed it up is creating a backlash. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's certainly giving room for people like Ron Wyden and Rand Paul to say that the Senate majority is not interested in debating people's gotcha. privacy which might be true. Um, okay, let's move on to our object lessons. Uh, I'm going to go first because mine's a little sad. But this is actually um, a photograph you can see here uh, of an oh, old really bombed out burned that? village in a rusted car. This is a village in France called Orador sur Glen, which was the site of the worst civilian massacre by the Germans uh, in occupied France against French civilians. Wow. Uh, on uh, June 10th, 1944, so 71 years ago this week. Uh, so I brought this thing because it was the anniversary, uh, and also I'm going to have a story at the Daily Beast uh, in the coming weeks going into this more, and uh, also a case that is still pending in Germany against the now 90-year-old uh, former... A uh, member of the uh, the SS regiment that sacked the town and raised it. Uh, who and how many people were killed in the worst? Six hundred forty-two. Wow. wow! And women and children. So that is a large number, but remarkably small compared to Srebrenica. Uh, well, com- compared to what the Germans did on the Eastern Front to Poles, and yeah. and it's a uh, it's a hor- it's it's a horrible number. Um, but it's, but it's, 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 it's actually remarkable that that's the biggest massacre yeah. of civilians in, in it, occupied yeah, France. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's, um, and it, it, the, the reason I brought the photo in here too is because you see the ruins of the town. It's been preserved as what the French call a ghost village. So it's been deliberately left in the state that it was in. And, you know, and the, and the massacres at order still figure as a point of tension in German, uh, French politics. Uh, and it's kind of a, it's a living symbol and a memory. Uh, I have a friend who's, you know, from that area of France, and, you know, a year or so ago when I first learned about this and I told her I'd never heard of it, she looked at me like as if I'd never heard of, 
you know, some of the worst crimes uh, uh, committed in all of the Second World War. So for the French, this is a, a huge deal. Uh, and there's a lot of interest in this um, former machine gunner who was 19 at the time. And the German Supreme Court is apparently now considering whether he can be prosecuted. Uh, he would be tried as a juvenile, apparently, so he might not go to jail. But 71 years later, it's, wow. it's still cooking. Still yeah. Okay, tomorrow, what's your object? Well, um, another uh, Israel-related item, which is um, this week my center hosted uh, Yair Lapid, who is a member of Knesset and head of the uh, Yesh Atid, There is a Future Party. He was a minister in the last Israeli government, and he came to visit us for roundtable this week and brought us a gift, which is really a, a striking and moving object. I have a photo for you here. Um, last summer in... It's uh, very beautiful. Last summer there was, of course, a, a horrific war um, in which Hamas uh, sent hundreds and hundreds of uh, missiles and rockets into Israeli territory, and the uh, Israeli Defense Forces uh, went into Gaza at a tremendous human cost. And what uh, Lapid brought us is a metal sculpture, which was forged by an artist in one of the uh, towns in Israel's south that was bombarded by rockets last summer. It's a dove, and it is made from uh, a rocket hmm. that fell. It's made from the scrap metal of a rocket that fell in his town. Um, and he's going around and collecting. A lot of people have been collecting these these rockets, um, partly to you know to make a political point and. Um, and also just for uh, novelty value, but he's actually turning them into doves of peace. And so uh, Lapid presented one to us this week. Very cool. Sounds like uh, some quotation of beating swords into plowshares uh, is called for here. Right, and I, I think we can just say, inshallah. Um, so, Ben, your object brings us to the, the title of this edition, which if yes. anyone's still listening, they're not Well, <laughs> so, uh, as Shane will tell you, when she, I did not have an object lesson when Shane walked in, and he was going to shame me. But then I was saved by my uncle, who, just as we were sitting down to record, getting ready to record, emails me this remarkable video of um, a... Japanese robot that has been built to do uh, traditional Japanese sword fighting. And this robot mimics the movements of a master Japanese swordsman. And the video, which is quite beautifully done, is, a, uh, is the robot doing uh, traditional uh, uh, longsword work with fruits and vegetables and uh, bamboo columns. And we should say, like, it's not like a Ginsu knife commercial. Like, it's, he's, it's not like a Benihana restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's no, like no. slicing through them while they sit on the end, on the top of a post. I mean, this is he sliced, extraordinary. He slices through a, uh, the robot slices through a horizontal green bean. Um, so that's how fine uh, the thing is. Yeah, with uh, one swipe. We will put it, and it can still go through a tin can. And it can like still this. go through a tin can like this. Um, we will put it uh, up on the show page, and um, I, for one, uh, embrace our Japanese uh, samurai robot overlords. Oh, I can't wait to see one at a Benihana near me. Yeah. I, I Actually, if I saw one at a Benihana near me, I'd I would run for my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually a pretty intimidating robot. It is, it is pretty terrifying. It's going up on lawfare momentarily. 
All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our other great shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And when you download the podcast from your purveyor of choice, please remember to leave a rating and some comments and let us know what you think about the show and let others as well. Our podcast is edited by Jen Howell. The music for this week is performed by Benjamin Benihana. Honey? No, of course not. It's performed as always by Sophia Yan, who I think does long sword work. Uh, sure. She surely does. She sure certainly does. Terrifying Terrifying. handiwork. Terrifying. She chopped up a piano and then went right through a tomato. (laughs) This was really something. Uh, That's it for us. On behalf of my friends Tabarak Offen Wittis and Benjamin Wittis, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.